Okay, and welcome to this uh, podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Today, uh, with my guest and uh, my co-host, uh, Vicky Mays, we are going to discuss uh, work-related inequities, because that's the theme of the June issue of the journal. And uh, it's a constant theme in the journal. We, we've been covering it again and again under... Uh, unfortunately, it, it's an underfunded domain and uh, much more should be done in terms of funding research and also in uh, doing research. So before uh, we start, uh, let me ask uh, our guests to introduce themselves. Uh, let's start with uh, Paul Lee, please. Hello, my name is Paul Lee. I'm a, prof a professor emeritus from University of California, Davis. And my specialty is the economics of the economics of occupational safety and health. Thank you very much, Paul. Then Jersey. Hi, my name is Jersey Eisenberg Gill. I've been a postdoc at Columbia in the Psych Epi Training Program since fall 2020. Um, and generally, I'm a social epidemiologist, and I focus on how the structural organization of work, like workplace power imbalances, affect inequities in mental illness and other outcomes like mortality. Thank you very much, Jersey Adam. Uh, my name is Adam Gaffney. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician, um, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Um, my research interest has mostly focused on healthcare reform and um, healthcare financing, but I've been interested and I've studied several other aspects of uh, COVID policy, uh, and that's uh, kind of where I came at this. Thank you very much, Adam. You know, Vicky uh, Mays is a professor at uh, UCLA. And Vicky, you know, I I want to start with you, actually, because uh, you, you probably, you know, work-related inequities is probably not the main domain of, uh, you focus on, but it's surely present in all your research. So what would you expect from a, a podcast like ours with our guests. What, what, what's your expectation from this podcast? Well, it's interesting because you're absolutely right. Work is not my first domain. It's always in inequity work because during COVID is how people got exposed, you know, in terms of, you know, um, people without PPE. So there's so many ways in which work becomes important. But where it is up front for me, and Jersey is my person on this one, is when you think about dealing with mental health, we always say things like housing and employment are very important to those. So, um, so I think that this whole notion of what occupation you hold is critical. Great, great. And uh, we'll probably come uh, to this uh, in a moment. So let's start with our guest now and see, Paul, my question is to you first, because you've been looking at uh, the state of uh, public health uh, in American workers for a long time now. And so what's your impression? We're coming out of uh, this pandemic. What's the status of uh, public health in the working population? Well, um I see at least uh, three different impacts on American workers. Let me just mention a couple, a couple of these. The first is that COVID exposed a chasm in the workforce between essential and non-essential workers. Essential workers included physicians, nurses, and police officers, but also nursing home aides, warehouse workers, and meat packers. With the exception of healthcare professionals, most essential workers are lower paid blue-collar workers. This chasm has always existed for occupational diseases, 
Who would merely expose it for everybody to see? Dr. Gaffney's study is the best analysis I've seen that uh, indicates uh, the extent of this chasm. Uh, second impact on the American worker involves uh, labor unions and strikes. Public interest in unions has been increasing, and strike activity has also been increasing since uh, at least 2019. Christian Smalls is the leader of the new Amazon labor union in New York. He helped organize a COVID-related strike in April of 2020. Uh, he attributes his activism to management's disregard for the well-being of warehouse workers. Similar sentiments have been expressed by Starbucks employees during their recent efforts to unionize. I'm very familiar with the research literature in economics and sociology, and I can tell you that occupational hazards are probably the most, one of the most important predictors of union formation as well as strike activity. There's another impact on um, workers' compensation. Should I mention that now or perhaps later? Well, let, let's look at already what you mentioned. I mean, one one is is the essential workers that have been uh, particularly impacted. But if I understand, on the other side, there is a kind of a positive uh, impact, which is uh, more unionization and, and maybe uh, better wages, etc. That's what you're saying. There, there are those two dimensions. Uh, well, the unionization and is just now starting. So it hasn't really um, had a huge impact on, uh, on COVID yet. We'll see what happens in the future. But certainly, if you look around, you'll see that there's quite a bit more union, unionization activity than there was just a few years ago. And also, the public interest, by the way, and unions is at the highest level it's been since 1965. But the law is very, makes it very difficult to unionize these days. So even though, for example, the Amazon Labor Union passed the first hurdle, they haven't negotiated with um, management yet. And well, management has been quite slow to uh, negotiate with the workers as well. And this, exactly the same thing is happening with Starbucks. So the workers can vote to unionize. And here now we're, you know, a year later and we still haven't, don't have a contract in the Starbucks in Buffalo, New York, or the Amazon Labor Union in uh, Staten Island. Paul, I'm going to ask you, who do you think really benefits from unionization? Because we often see it occurring because of, you know, people who are not well paid and at the bottom of the heap. But at the end of the day, the question is, who really benefits the most from unionization, in your opinion? Is it going to contribute to better health outcomes? Uh, yes, I think it's good. I think, well, in general, uh, middle lower income people will benefit them, benefit uh, from unionization. Also, these days, African-Americans uh, and women are a much higher percentage of unionization than, than they ever have been before. And it is in economics literature, we know that, that unionization lifts wages, but they lift wages more for people in lower income jobs and for um, professionals. In fact, there are not a lot of professionals that are, that are unionized, although, of course, we know teachers are, teachers are unionized. And it turns out, actually, I'm going to be on the, uh, a call here next week, let's see, in Pittsburgh. The resident physicians in Pittsburgh are talking about unionization, and they're thinking about, well, they're, they're having a, a seminar just on that. Well, there's actually, there's a lot I could say about unionization and um, health and safety, but uh, in general, yes, it definitely improves the health and safety for employees. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, we, we clearly see that now when we talk about union and unionization, the situation is completely different from what it was a few years ago. I mean, people are much more positive and optimistic, and there are some uh, results which didn't exist a few years ago. So I think that that's probably also a, a consequence of this crisis. But Jersey, let, let me turn to you. you. You've been looking at the situation before the crisis. Can you tell us about your study and your findings and why they are important? Yeah, definitely. So I'll, I'll first go into like some theory background and then I can go into like the actual findings. But we use relational social class theory in our analysis. Um, and relational social theory suggests that the magnitude of class inequities in a given workplace or historical period, for example, is really shaped by the balance of power between workers and employers. And as we were just discussing, recent trends in health affecting working conditions, including plummeting labor union membership and surging class disparities in income, suggest power has really tipped away from workers over the last few decades. Um, and I think this tipping of class power is probably reflected in the surging mortality inequities by income and education we've seen in the U.S., as well as declining population life expectancy. Um, so our study examined class mortality inequities among U.S. adults from 1986 to 2019 in the National Health Interview Survey. I um, mean, in our study, we estimated pretty large class mortality inequities, as workers had an over six per hundred greater mortality rate than larger business owners and managers over the 34 years of follow-up. Um, with mortality risks especially high for those blue-collar workers and service workers, as well as the unemployed, which is unsurprising. Um, and perhaps most worrisome, we estimate that the class mortality inequities have increased over time, driven by pretty dramatic mortality rate decreases among larger business owners and stagnant or increasing mortality rates among workers. Um, and this aligns with trends in mortality inequities across other social axes like income and education, I mean, it suggests a pretty urgent need for public health intervention. So since it's public health, Jersey, uh, repeat the, the magnitude of the difference, because that's the public health dimension of it. Yeah. So workers had a six per hundred greater mortality rate than larger business owners and managers over 34 years of follow up. And I forget the exact numbers for blue collar workers, service workers and the unemployed, but I think they all had about a 12 per hundred greater mortality rate over 34 years. And that's just among like working age adults. So mostly focused from 25 to 64. Okay, got it. And so, Adam, you've looked at the same uh, survey, actually, but you looked at the impact of uh, COVID-19. So what did you find and how do you think this will fit with Jersey's finding? Well, I think it fits with Jersey's finding pretty clearly because it sort of carries through some of the same points that his, he and his team found before the pandemic. In brief, we looked at only two years of the same survey, the National Health Interview Survey, and there have been previous studies looking at disparities in COVID mortality in particular by occupation. Those analyses, of course, may also reflect differences in baseline health, as, as we heard um, are quite clear in Jersey's study and much other work. We wanted to look at the COVID prevalence specifically because that gives you a little bit of a clearer picture of actual um, exposure as opposed to um, other factors that might increase risk of complications or severe disease. 
And so using the NHS of will, we can make national statements about the, the, the nation at large. We looked by industry, we looked, we looked by occupation at um, sort of the risk of having a COVID diagnosis in those first two years of the pandemic. And we found sort of un, somewhat unsurprisingly that many occupations and industries that have sort of uh, defined as essential workers that have, four, you know, public facing work and had higher risks of COVID. Some industries that are, um, you know, more professional class um, and managerial class had lower rates. One of the interesting findings we found is that uh, when we compared workers to non-workers, we found an even bigger effect, meaning that whereas only a few occupations had a higher rate of COVID than other occupations, many more occupations and workers in other industries had increased risks compared to non-workers. I would say probably the most original, if again unsurprising, finding in our study was that we looked at the risk of having COVID as an adult based on the number of workers in your household. So this is a way of sort of looking at how the risk of occupation affects not just the individual, but those in their families. And we found that even if you control for household size, income, age, we found that the number of workers in your household is linked to a higher risk of COVID that sort of increases stepwise, uh, gets higher and higher as you go from zero to one to two to three workers. And so this really just adds one more bit of evidence showing that part of the unjust and inequitable impact of COVID was based on occupation, was based on work, was based on inadequacies and in workplace protections, frankly, and our failure to do more during the pandemic to protect workers. And we can talk about what those policies might have been or might still be. But again, I think this does carry forward some of the messages that emerges emerge from the Jersey study. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even if it's expected finding, we need the findings. We need the data. We need to show that uh, they exist. And how did you deal with the limitations of the fact that maybe some workers uh, would not have been uh, tested as often as other group of the population, that maybe your data would underestimate the real impact? Well, how did you deal with this problem? It's a it's a limitation of our study that we address. I mean that we that we describe as a limitation. The fact is in the United States we didn't have a population based zero survey um, as, as there was in the United Kingdom. So that's what you would want if you could really want to look at true zero prevalence in the society at large. So, you know, we did look at COVID testing rates to give a sense of, oh, was this simply a, a, a sort of function of different testing intensity? And it doesn't look like that, you know, is, is, is clearly the cause, but it is a limitation and there may be some differences in testing intensity that could contribute to some of the findings. I'm very skeptical that it explains it um, in, in fall. If, if anything, your results are probably underestimated. The, the, the reality, that's the bias goes in that direction. I don't think it, it goes in the other direction. Okay, so let's have a conversation about these findings. Uh, Paul, Jersey, Adam, you know, you've covered different aspects of those work-related inequities. So what, what does each of you your work inspire yourself. And Vicky, what would be your expectation from on the basis of what we just heard? Can I, I talk about uh, workers' compensation for a minute? Sure, please, please. This is another impact of uh, what we've been talking about because uh, who pays when workers contract COVID on the job? Theoretically, workers' compensation should pay, but workers' compensation insurers argue with some justification that they do not know how or when a worker might have contract COVID. 
In most states today, the workers' compensation law puts the burden of proof on the worker. The law presumes that the COVID was caught someplace else. This is similar to other occupational diseases and explains why workers' compensation insurers pay about, actually avoid paying about 80 to 99% of all occupational disease costs. These costs are shifted onto others like private insurance companies, Medicaid and Medicare, that is taxpayers, and afflicted workers and their families. But there are 11 states that have reversed the rule of pres presumption. Their workers' compensation law presumes that COVID was caught on the job and that workers' compensation must pay. But not all workers qualify. Utah and Wisconsin limit coverage to the first responders and to healthcare workers. Illinois, New Jersey, and Vermont cover all essential workers. California and Wyoming cover all workers. Now, workers' compensation law is important because it can incentivize employers to take more precautions. If COVID is presumed to be job-related, workers' compensation insurance premiums will rise. Employers will have an incentive to keep workers safe, thereby receiving uh, reducing premiums. If COVID is presumed not to be job-related, employers will have less incentive to keep workers safe. Anyway, I think that when we talk about what are some of the policy recommendations, I think one policy recommendation should be that all states should have the presumption that if you're a working in healthcare or a first responder, at a minimum, that COVID is uh, job-related and workers' compensation should have to pay. And again, this will raise premiums, and now employer has an economic incentive to provide as much support to reduce the, the incidence of COVID. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a very, very important point. Um, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point and uh, one I agree with. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, I mentioned uh, earlier on, I, my, my clinical area is pulmonary medicine, and there's so many occupational diseases that are closely tied with the history of pulmonary medicine, coal workers, pneumoconiosis, asbestosis, um, silicosis, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. We don't usually think of vir respiratory viruses as, as occupational illnesses, right? We don't traditionally, but certainly we should. And I think that that pandemic made this quite clear, you know, I worked in a hospital. I always had access to an N95. The simple fact of the matter is, is that workers in other non-healthcare industries and sometimes in some healthcare industries did not have access to that. That should have absolutely been, that kind of provision of that kind of protection absolutely should have been, you know, something that we could have achieved. You know, I think the other flip side of the workers' comp workman's compensation issue is that healthcare expenses really shouldn't be tied at all to you know your workplace. In other words, from from the perspective of getting the care you need and getting healthcare covered, that should be something that should be universal. I think as a side point. I think we can think of a lot of other things, indoor air quality, you know, thinking about not just COVID, but other respiratory viruses. What are the what are the responsibilities? What should be the standards? And many other things I think could have made a difference and, and could, could, could still continue to make a difference if we think about uh, respiratory viruses as in, in, in some part occupational. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this leads us to discuss what should we do now in order to avoid that the same thing happens uh, if there is another pandemic. Compensation is clearly one. What, what do you see uh, as other important uh, reforms that should be implemented rapidly? I'll just mention one other one. I think a big part of this story was the lack of a more robust sort of national OSHA standard. Now, OSHA did pass, did, did put forth a vaccine versus testing and masking mandate. And ultimately, of course, that was thrown out by the Supreme Court. 
we need to demand that sort of standard and how to deal with it politically and how to deal with a court that seems like it's happy to throw out every single possible, you know, public health uh, measure that, that gets passed is a separate question. But I think the national regulatory response is an important part of the story. Absolutely. That's a good point. I would certainly agree with that. And um, I would like to also mention that Dr. Gaffney's data, you can actually take some numbers from Dr. Gaffney's data to uh, apply to what epidemiologists call the population attributable fraction. And uh, using Dr. Gaffney's excellent data, you can estimate that about 25% of all COVID cases that he and his team were looking at were job-related. So this gives you some idea of the magnitude of the what occupations are contributing to the COVID pandemic. And so that there, there certainly should be more attention to what we can do at work to try to minimize the exposure. Absolutely. That, that's a very interesting uh, computation that you did, Paul, and that will appear in your editorial in, in the June issue. And Jersey, I'm curious, what type of public health consequence do you draw from your own finding and your own classification of, of, of work position, I would say? I mean, I guess since like the theory we're using to motivate the analysis suggests that like the power imbalances are really a root cause of occupational health inequities, including inequities beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, efficiently and sustainably addressing the inequities might require more like structural worker empowering interventions. I mean, those include the policy changes to decommodify necessities and strengthen labor protections, including those like the changes to workers' compensation, the expanded unemployment insurance we saw earlier in the pandemic, um, as well as labor union and social movement organizing, sort of targeting broader economic transformation um, and I think the uptake in work organizing exemplified by like the Amazon and Starbucks worker campaigns is really exciting, as are the grad student and postdoc and resident union campaigns at many of our own institutions. Um, and I think it would behoove public health researchers to try to work in solidarity with those movements, um, including not only on the ground, but also researching the role of like class and power and worker empowerment and health inequities, um, which is really an area of research that's been like neglected as occupational health is neglected generally too, obviously, in, in epidemiology, so. Let me ask Jersey a question, because Jersey is giving us what's potentially a hopeful avenue, and that is we've tried in terms of government regulations to do that, and it's moving too slow or it gets rejected. Jersey, what's your thought about the kinds of things that Paul was talking about in terms of strikes? Could it be that it's actually going to be the labor class that can turn this around? and really get us the public health protection that we need? How hopeful are you about that? I mean, I think at least, in, I guess that's like, a, that's a huge question. I don't exactly know like what's to be done, but- uh, But a great but, one, yeah, really but good. a great one, but, Jersey. Uh, I think I'm like at least hopeful in the long term. I feel like the only way we're gonna get where we need to go is through like, community organizing and worker organizing in the labor movement. And I do think there are like really hopeful changes recently among like service workers and other oppressed workers that have historically been excluded from the labor movement. But I also think there's such a long way to go. And even like the little uptick in strike activity we're seeing now, like pales in comparison to where we were 30 years ago, like it's not even close to where that was. And so I feel like 
yeah, it's really hopeful. And there's a lot of interest in the in unions among like younger people. But there's also like so much employer resistance. And I think it was like right to say that workers want to organize and employers have just developed new tactics to fight it. And so it's going to be about how to yeah, it's going to be the challenge how to make progress despite all the like employer attacks. I think Thank you're you. giving us one of the most hopeful ways forward <laughs> in the sense of maybe it's not all about government regulation. Maybe it really is about the organizing when you talk about these structural barriers. So I want to thank Jersey for like the hopefulness at the end that got brought into this. So who might really change things? And and and, and because of the hopefulness, I think we, we cannot add anything beyond that. We want to keep our listeners, you know, with that uh, perspective. I want to thank you all for your time, for your enthusiasm, for, you know, how much you dedicate to these questions that are, again, understudied, underfunded. And uh, really, we, we all are very grateful for what uh, you're all doing. And Vicky, thanks again. You're a terrific co-host. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Bye.